I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Before you hear how something ends, you should hear how it began. Can you tell me your name and who you are? My name is John Mennell. I am your father. (laughs) We're sure of that. Yeah. Well, as far as I know, I mean... How long have you been my father? Uh, 30 years and, um, let's see, six months. Great. How did you and mom meet? We worked at a restaurant in Indianapolis together called Sizzler. Squeeze those lemons, chop those herbs, all that chicken, it's superb. Hamburgers, prime rib on the weekends. We all-you-can-eat shrimp a lot of times. They would have all-you-could-eat things, all-you-could-eat fried shrimp, all-you-can-eat ribs. They had a Malibu chicken, which is like a cheap man's cordon bleu. I lived with three other people in an apartment when I was 19. There was four of us total, two bedroom. We all four farmed out to other sizzlers. So we had some really big parties. And we would have people come from all four different Sizzlers to our parties. Sizzler parties. The, the Sizzler parties, yeah. You may not know every single person, but you knew a good number of people at, there, at all of them. There was like a Sizzler crew. Yeah. Your mom it came to some of those parties, and I I asked for permission to kiss her. And she said yes, and that was like, she thought that was like impressive that I asked her oh, really? permission and then just go and do it, yeah. He was very polite, very smart. Mm-hmm. I always thought he was one of the smartest people I'd, I'd ever met. I feel like I've heard a story about like an early date where you went to Red Lobster. Yeah, we, no, it wasn't Red Lobster. It was at Sizzler. Oh. We had a date. At, your, at, 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 at Sizzler, Sizzler you worked at? Yeah, and we had crab. Because they had all you could eat crab. And you know how I am with crab. I know. Wait, is that a date if you go to the Sizzler you work at? Yeah, it was. Uh, I don't know if that's a date, but yeah, it was at the Sizzler I, okay. I worked at. And she had snow crab, one of her favorites. And she was breaking her snow crab and she piece of it hit me he ended up getting talked to by the manager after that about dating employees and that da, 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 and you shouldn't be seen and and you need to watch out for katie because she's just gonna break your heart anyway so the manager said that yeah whoa did so, you have a reputation i guess i did i can tell you the first time i said i love you to her at greenwood mall you know, the little um, fountains and stuff that they have that you can throw coins in. A wishing well. A wishing well. And this is going to sound really cheesy. I threw a coin in, and I wished she would say she loved me. We go out to the parking lot. We're getting in the car. She's driving. And I, I we were getting in. I told her I loved her. And she said, I love you, too. And she just smiled. And it struck me. And I'm like, I wish that. And it happened. <laughs> you know, so. And I told, I told her pretty much right away, I think. You know, I just, that's what I wished. We got married in August 1987. It gives me great pleasure to be the first to introduce to you Mr. and Mrs. John Joseph Minnell, Jr. And for the most part, we were happy. 
I was happy. Mm-hmm. I mean, we had good times and bad times. You know, there were there were years that everything was great, mm-hmm. and then there were times that things were not so great. Mm-hmm. When my parents split up in 2011, to me it seemed to happen overnight. They packed up and moved out of the only home they had ever owned, into separate apartments. They owed more money on the house than it was worth, having bought it a decade earlier, when seemingly anybody could get a loan for a decent home in Florida. Before they sold it, I got a chance to go back one more time. It was a summer afternoon, I flew back from New York, and my brother drove me over there. When we pulled up, one of my parents' old cars was sitting in the driveway, sun-damaged and dead. We walked inside, and the place smelled like mildew. The AC hadn't been on in months, and this was Florida, so the laminate wood floors my mom had installed on her own had warped. There were random items scattered throughout, things they had left behind. A standing lamp from Walmart, a drum set from the video game Rock Band, the card game Apples to Apples was in the closet, and a nearly full bottle of Dawn dish soap was left open by the kitchen sink. I walked out to the back door and looked out in the yard. The grass I used to mow every few weeks had grown above waist high, It was like being in a dystopian, funhouse version of my childhood. How does that happen? How do things go from so normal to so warped so quickly? We had never talked about the divorce. It seemed to just sort of happen. And so now, almost a decade in, nobody in the family knew what anybody else was thinking or feeling. Every interaction was a minefield. I didn't know what things were supposed to look like for us, but after having spent so much of the last five years thinking about the broken relationships in Matthew McGill's family, I knew things shouldn't look like this. And so I thought, maybe, if I could just understand what happened between us, I could close some of the distance. If I could just talk to my folks, air out the things we hadn't been saying to each other, that might help. What could go wrong? I'm Eric Mennel, and from Pineapple Street Studios, this is Stay Away from Matthew McGill. Part 5. Dreams. One thing that became clear the minute I sat down with my parents was that they both knew their marriage had had problems for years. Ever since I was a baby, really. My dad quickly became a workaholic, routinely putting in 50, 60-hour weeks. But he wasn't much help at home. Your dad has always been like, his job is his job, and when he comes home, he's off. This is my mom, Katie. She's 55 now. Both she and my dad were in their early 20s when I was born. And so everything was my responsibility. When you were a baby, he never got out of bed with you at night. You know, never once. He didn't change diapers. And after, I mean, after months of not having one single full night's sleep and getting up at the crack of dawn, I told him, I said, I can't do this. I cannot physically keep doing this. And you need to start getting up with him at least one day a week. Things have to change. I can't do it all. Okay. Nothing changed. Finally, I said, you got 30 days. Figure it out how, what you're going to do to help me out. 
because in 30 days I'm leaving if you don't. I was going to come down here. To Florida? Yeah. And leave him in Indiana? Yep. If I was going to do it by myself, I might as well do it by myself. Mm-hmm. You were going to bring us with you? Oh, of course. Yeah. At least show some signs. Make an effort. Literally days before the 30 days were up, he came home, got home a little bit earlier. He heard me on the phone making definite plans. I mean, I had a way down here. I had a place to go. I had it all worked out and he he realized I was serious. He realized at that point he had to do something. And so one day a week he would get up with you guys. I mean, that's all I wanted. One day. Yeah. But it took knowing that I was really leaving for him to make that effort. So what, after 20 years of that, made you finally decide it's time? When I realized how much it was affecting others. I mean, there was one day, and this this is like a pivotal day in the whole decision process. Mm-hmm. Um, you were at school. In college. Yeah, in college. It was away. Right. And Philip, my nephew, was living with us. And, you know, it's late afternoon after school. Danny and Shannon and Philip were all in the living room. And I could hear them in there talking and laughing, giggling, whatever they're doing. You know, I can hear them in there engaging with each other. The kids would have been between the ages of 11 and 18 at the time. Your dad came home. Within minutes, Danny was in his room with the door shut. Philip was in his room with the door shut. And Shannon was sitting in the living room by herself. No sound coming from anybody. The whole atmosphere just changed. That probably wasn't the first time something like that had happened. Probably not, but that was when I noticed it. Mm -hmm. Such a change. And I told him I was unhappy and I wanted a divorce. The night she told Shannon that we were separating, it broke me. This is my dad, John. He's 54 now, stocky, with salt and pepper hair. He'll admit he does not get cut frequently enough. My sister was 12 years old the night my parents told her they were splitting up. It's a story I've never heard, never even asked about before now. How did you tell her? We came home from Girl Scouts, and we were sitting in the car outside. In the driveway. In the driveway. And I begged Katie not to do it. I begged her. In In the car you were In the car, yeah. In front of Shannon, even. Uh, It was Friday night. Um, They'd picked me up from a Girl Scout meeting. And this is Shannon, who you met last episode. Unless this is your first episode, which would be weird. What are you doing here? Go back. We were driving home, and they're very quiet. And I was kind of like, what? We have to tell you something. I remember them telling me, like, we're going to separate. But I was like, okay, where are we going to live kind of thing? Like, mm-hmm. what's happening in the house? And it was like, we're going to move out. They didn't tell me, like, oh, we're going to get a divorce. Like, we're splitting it for good. It was like, oh, we're just separating for right now. So it was like, oh, they could get back together. Like, maybe mom just, like, needs time on her own to, like, sort things out. Dad seemed to be pretty quiet from what I remember. I don't remember him saying much. And I had to get out of the car. I could not bear it because it just, it was, you know, I've gone through a mom, my own mother dying. I was five and other things. But this was just, like, sorry, tearing up. But it was the hardest thing. I knew you boys could handle it, but... Why were you worried about Shannon? 
just little. And she already had, you know, anxiety issues then. And it was tough. Still is, huh? Uh, you can take a minute. Do you want water? No. Okay. Uh, sorry about that. You have to apologize. It's a hard thing. This is incredibly sad. My parents told my brother, Danny, that same night. I'm not exactly sure when I found out, but it must have been in the next couple of weeks. I had just moved to New York for work, my first paid radio job. My mom called one evening when I was at a friend's place. It was weird for her to be calling at that hour, so I assumed something bad had happened and walked out into the hallway. She told me they were all leaving the house and that they had gotten rid of the family dog, an old German shepherd named Taz. They couldn't have pets in their new apartments, so they took him to the pound. I remember her being sad and maybe crying, but it was a short call. I don't think I asked many questions. The thing I remember being upset about was not the split. It was the dog. I remember thinking about him falling asleep on the bed with me when I was younger, and then picturing him in a cage, likely to be put down before too long. I thought about flying home to Florida to readopt him and bring him to New York with me, but he was already very old, and I had no money, and I certainly was not going to keep an 80-pound German Shepherd in the third-floor walk-up I shared with three Craigslist roommates. So the next day I went to work, knowing the dog was going to die, knowing my family was leaving our home. I tried to stay out of it, keep my distance, stay busy with work. By my recollection, I actually handled the whole thing pretty well. There are times where I was just like, I was like, Eric is the oldest, and he's acting like more of a child about this than I am. Shannon did not agree with that assessment. She remembers me being angry and feeling like I couldn't possibly understand what was going on. You weren't there. You were at college, so you didn't necessarily see them like arguing with each other. You didn't see them kind of like start like separating beforehand. And it was just like clearly like harder for you than me. It's surprising to me this is how Shannon remembers it, because I keep my cards close. I don't express a ton of emotion, though I guess that can go both ways. I did once have a boss say in a formal review, Eric, nobody can tell what you're thinking. And so they think you're pissed off all the time. Which I would argue is actually their problem, but that's for another day. Why do you think I've been such a pain in the ass about it? It probably caught you off guard. You were away. Then you would come home and, you know, things would seem fine. And we would all be happy. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, things aren't fine. You just felt like I went away and now I'm coming back and everything is different. Mm Mm-hmm. And now I'm coming home to not the house I've lived in for most of my life, but two apartments that I've never seen before. She is right about that. That was what got me most. The house. When I was driving up and down Florida to figure out what happened with Matthew McGill, finding his exes, looking for his court records, it was the image of the now bizarro house I had grown up in that would flash in my mind. The bedroom door that never got fixed when my dad kicked it in. The strip of dirt along the fence where grass wouldn't grow because Taz would chase passing cars back and forth all day. I was sad. I was embarrassed. I was angry. I was in my 20s, and while I didn't think my parents should be together anymore, I somehow did think they should still be responsible for the house, for a place I could call home. 
So I panicked. And rather than face my family and ask questions or even just let them know how let down I felt, I stayed away. I focused on work, on one story and then the next, and then ultimately on Matthew McGill, a dead guy who I thought couldn't possibly let me down any more than the people I loved already had. And there was one person I took it out on more than any other. In some ways, I'm not proud of. That's after the break. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. And I want to tell you about a podcast I think you're going to love. Who Weekly is a podcast about everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Does celebrity news stress you out? Are there too many people you've literally never heard of? Check out Who Weekly, a podcast hosted by Lindsay Weber and me, Bobby Finger. Each episode goes deep into the biggest who celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we'll answer the most burning listener queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly on the Odyssey app or wherever else you get your podcasts. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now, I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully, no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. By 2019, I had spent years talking with Matthew McGill's family, his exes, his cousin, his brothers, even his in-laws. And after a trip to California for one of those interviews, it occurred to me that I was asking them questions I had never asked my own family. Just wasn't something we did. So while walking somewhere in Berkeley, I sent an email to my parents. Here's how it went. Hi, a question for the two of you. I've been thinking a lot about the divorce and how we've never really had a conversation about it as a family. I'd like to finally talk with everyone about how things have changed over the last decade. And if people are open to it, I'd like to record those conversations. They're conversations I've been wanting to have for some time. I think they could be really helpful for me, but also possibly for everyone. I know this sounds potentially very uncomfortable and strange, but I do find that for myself, the microphone can allow me to ask questions that I might not be able to otherwise. I hope you both can trust that I do have the family's best interests at heart. I wouldn't do this if I didn't think it could be genuinely helpful, and we might all learn some things. Thanks so much for thinking about it. Feel free to give me a ring if you want to talk more. Love and miss you both. E. The person I was most nervous to talk with was my mom. We'd had a big fight on Christmas Eve a year and a half earlier about her new boyfriend and me not knowing where I was supposed to stay when I was back in town. It was bad enough that I was now refusing to sleep at her house and almost never called. 
which in itself is not notable. Lots of people have bad relationships with one or both of their parents. A lot of people, justifiably, don't have any relationship with their parents. But this was not an inevitable outcome for me and my mom. I knew that. And I thought figuring out what went wrong might help make things better again. Yeah, okay. We sat down in my sister's bedroom to talk. I was on the bed, and she sat in Shannon's desk chair. She had a Diet Dr. Pepper in her hand. If my mom were an action figure, a tiny Diet Dr. Pepper would be her main accessory. We're recording, by the way, just so you know. I figured. I saw the numbers moving. Um, We started with the period right after she left my dad, when things first became noticeably worse between us. Shortly after you separated, you and I didn't talk for a little while, and I can't remember exactly how long it was. Do you remember? It was after the first time you came home. Did we fight? Yeah, because I said something to you, and you that's when you kind of like laid into me. A few months after my parents separated, I flew back to Florida for the first time. I decided to stay with my mom and sleep on my sister's bed for the week, the same one I'm sitting on for this interview. It was the first time I had ever felt like a guest with my family, which is exactly how I acted, like a crummy guest. It was just like little things that you did, you know, like come home from work every morning and there's stuff, dirty dishes all over the place and little things like that, food left out, things that were not the norm for you. Growing up, I was always the neat one. I loved a chore. My mom worked nights, often at two different jobs, and so I tried my best to do the dishes, clean up around the house, keep stuff in order, the kinds of things my dad was particularly bad at. So to have me stay with her as an adult and leave things a mess, it was surprising and disappointing. And to me, it just seemed like like a disrespect thing. Mm-hmm. We did end up talking before you left, and you like laid into me and like saying that I, I wish I could remember the words, what, what was said, but I'm probably glad I don't. Mm-hmm. But it was not too kind at all. Mm. We didn't talk for a long time after that, probably six months or more. This moment, my mom insists, is when things really started going downhill. But me? I literally do not remember it at all. It's the unfair thing about memories, how differently they sit with different people. The thing is, most of my and my mom's shared memories are pretty good. When I was growing up, she and I were much closer than I was with my dad. My dad and I would have terrible shouting matches. Things were thrown. There was at least one hole in the wall. My mom and I, on the other hand, were, I would go so far as to say, friends. We shared things with each other. I liked sitting out on the porch with her while she smoked, just to hang out. As I got older, though, and moved away from home, my relationship with my dad softened. We became friends. We talked about politics and the news almost weekly. We'd go see movies together when I was in town, or baseball games. As yours and my relationship was deteriorating, you're getting so much better of a relationship with your dad, which is great. I'm I'm very happy about that. But ours is like totally gone to shit. You think it's gone to shit? In a lot of ways. It has definitely felt like you've blamed me. You think less of me. You are 
not as accepting of things with me. And I don't feel like I deserve that. You said you think I blame you. What do you think I'm blaming you for? Breaking up your family. I ask my mom about the final months of the marriage, and she tells me about the counselor she and my dad saw for a couple sessions. I didn't like the lady. I would never say it was your dad's fault. Mm -hmm. I am every bit as much to blame. I'm sure your dad has plenty of things to complain about me for, too, you know? Because God knows I'm not perfect. It's okay. The counselor made it like it was all his fault. I mean, it was as much my fault. How? I don't know. You know, maybe I had this ideal picture in my head that I, you know, that we didn't live up to, or I don't know. This whole thing. You know, I failed. I didn't go into marriage expecting to fail. Our marriage failed. Our life together failed. I failed you guys. I failed you. Listening back to this interview now is hard because in the moment, I truly could not hear how cold I sounded how much my mom was giving, and how reluctant I was to engage. But I think this was par for the course with us. My mom carrying so much, and me expecting her to. I mean, I do feel guilty about it all. Why? I feel selfish, putting my happiness. Why do you think you feel that way? Well, probably because you three were and are the most important things to me. You have always been my number one consideration. Everything I did was for you guys Mm -hmm. to provide for a better life for you guys and or do something for you. You know, everything... Ultimately, everything was for you guys. Mm-hmm. And this was 100% not. And for the first time, I see it. The hardest decision of my mom's life was one of the first she ever made almost entirely for herself. Sure, I guess you could call it selfish. But even more than that, it must have been so lonely. My family doesn't have a lot of home movies. We didn't have a camcorder when I was little. But there are a few stashed away that somebody recorded at big events. One is from my mom and my dad's wedding. Another is an ultrasound from 1997, my sister in utero. The third is from 1989, my mom's baby shower just before I was born. Her friend, my godmother, is behind the camera. Everybody give me a big grin. One at a time. 
My mom is so young, just 23. Her hair is curly and permed. She's opening gifts and eating cake, and there are friends and family measuring her belly. Go ahead and stand up and wrap yours around her. She's basically the same age I was when I got frustrated and stopped talking to her. You gonna eat a blue booty or a pink one? Pink. My parents lived in a one-bedroom apartment. They still worked at Sizzler. Too close to me. I can't get your head and your belly all in the same screen. <laughs> I know my mom wanted to be a mom. She had dreamt about it. And it's hard for me to watch this video knowing how much grief I'll cause her when I grow up. She has no idea. Back up, Katie, back up a little bit more, will you, hun? You're too close. My mom was an incredible mom. She made me Power Rangers costumes by hand. When boy bands got popular, she held my head over the kitchen sink and bleached my hair platinum blonde. When I wanted to go to college up north, she flew with me to tour campuses, even though deep down, I think we both knew I could never afford it. Oh my. Now we can bring our baby home. <laughs> Watching this video of her for maybe the fifth or sixth time just sort of hits me. My entire life, my mom tried to get me as close to my dreams as she could. And the very first time she wasn't able to do that, when she needed to look out for herself, I turned on her. I ran away. What's been the hardest part for you? You have. You've been the hardest part. Why? Things have changed completely between us. What went wrong between us? It wasn't her choice. It was me. I'm sorry if I ever made you feel like I blamed you for anything. I don't know if I've ever said this to you, but I, I've never been upset that you left Dad. It's always made sense to me. And, like, I'm surprised... It didn't happen sooner. I mean, I would, I would like for you to be able to say, yeah, my mom and dad have been married for 78 years. and You'd be very what, old at that point. Well, you would, okay, that's an, I'm probably well past dead. I don't think I'm going to make it that far. Oof. Okay, 68 years. Sure. And we could have done that. Guess we're not as good of actors as we thought we were. No. I don't think any of us are. No. The one question I've gotten more than any other during the years of looking into Matthew McGill's life is whether I think Matthew and I are the same. Am I worried I will become him? And I always bristle a bit because, obviously, we are not the same. I will never be in a soap opera. I haven't gone on the run. I am not violent and I likely will not die alone, living in a trailer in the woods. But there are some things that feel similar, even if it took a long time for me to admit. Namely that, for most of our adult lives, we both refuse to look too closely at our own roles in our failing relationships. We struggled to imagine how we might be at fault. We felt like victims, not like participants. That said, there is one big difference between Matthew and I. And it's that I still have a choice. I can still make an effort and perhaps close some of the distance between me and the people I care about. There were two things left I wanted to do. For one, 
I wanted to get my whole family alone, in a room, together, for the first time since I was a kid. And also, I wanted to return Matthew McGill's box to his family. That's next. Stay Away From Matthew McGill was created by me, Eric Mennel, with Pineapple Street Studios. It's produced by Elliot Adler and me, edited by Joel Lovell and Hilary Frank, with editing help from Lisa Pollack. The executive producers at Pineapple Street are Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky. Fact-checking and research by Sarah Ivory, mixing by Hannes Brown, production management by Grace Chen, social by Hadim Jang, marketing and visuals by Kurt Courtney, Josephina Francis, Melissa Wester, and Hilary Schuf at Cadence 13. Unlicensed podcast therapist, Rachel Ward. Early reporting for this project was supported by Gimlet Media, original scoring by Blank Forms and S. Carey. Our credit song, On the Cusp, is by the band Any Kind. The show is a co-production of Pineapple Street Studios and Odyssey. Odyssey is home for all the podcasts, music, news, and sports audio that matters to you. That's A-U-D-A-C-Y. You can download Odyssey on the App Store or Google Play for free. That's A-U-D-A-C-Y.